Sometimes, unfortunately, the truth as it relates to first responders and law enforcement in particular, which is my background, is not told in a manner that is authentic. Maybe 10 years into my career, uh, I started to train in my off-duty time in filmmaking. We know that the family is a huge factor in a police officer's performance. It really is the little guy in this case that I think are telling some of the more important stories out there. Well, as a supervisor, we would always be taught the first thing you should probably do is bring them into your office, sit them down, and ask that question. Is there something going on at home? Welcome to Respond to Resilience, along with my co-host, Bonnie Rumley, LCSW EMT, and Dr. Stacy Raymond. I'm David Dashinger. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Jason Harney, filmmaker with Lightning Digital Entertainment, about his films and his law enforcement career. We invite you to like and subscribe. Our YouTube channel is Respond to Resilience. We're on Facebook, Responder TV, and Responder Wellness, Inc., pbsradio.com, all the podcast platforms, and our website is respondertv.com for past episodes and guest information. We'll be right back to speak with Jason after this. In this family, more of us die by our own hands than by the hazards of the job. In this family, up to a quarter of 911 telecommunicators have symptoms of post-traumatic stress. In this family, our mental health and wellness are in crisis, while responders are quietly suffering. In this family, many struggle with job-related stress, burnout, trauma, sleep disruptions, substance abuse, and relationship problems. In this family, we can help the helpers. With vital information and resources, resilient strategies, and success stories of overcoming the obstacles. In In this family, family, no one is alone. Welcome to Respond to Resilience with co-hosts, retired Lieutenant David Dashinger, Dr. Stacy Raymond, and Bonnie Rimley, LCSW, EMTB. This episode is made possible by Rebound by Restore Ear, revolutionary cold therapy for hearing loss prevention. To learn more, visit RestoreEar.com. That's R-E-S-T-O-R-E-A-R.com. We'd like to welcome to Respond to Resilience, Jason Harney. Jason is retired as a police sergeant after 23 and a half years with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. He's now a documentary filmmaker, producing and directing films under his Lightning Digital Entertainment banner, with emphasis on the critical issues facing law enforcement. Jason, warm welcome to Respond to Resilience. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a true honor. It's great to meet you. It's nice to meet you, too. Um, I'd like to start by asking you, um, how did you get involved in policing? What piqued your interest to become a police officer? Well, I'm going to have to uh, say that uh, is a result of of being a part of the law enforcement family. My uh, father, Steve Harney, is a retired uh, Nevada Highway Patrolman, 32 years, retired as a lieutenant, uh, as was his older brother and younger brother, both uh, NHP uh, troopers. And since that time, not only did I become a police officer with Las Vegas Metropolitan Police, but uh, two of my cousins did as well. So uh, we're one of those law enforcement families. I, I guess you could just say it's in the blood. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your career at Las Vegas Metro? What was it like for you? Um, maybe some notable moments that you can think about? Well, you know, when you work in a place like Las Vegas, as you can imagine, it's uh, one of the top tourist destinations in the country. So you end up having it. it, 
I've watched it grow. I've lived here in, in Las Vegas since 1982. And uh, I think at that time, I think we had maybe a half a million people or so. It's well over 2 million today. And that's one part of it, though. We also draw 40 million tourists to the Las Vegas Strip every single year. So as a police department, you can imagine uh, with, with uh, right around 5,700 uh, 5, to 5,800 uh, employees, uh, it's quite the task to police uh, 40 million tourists along with the population. So it's an exciting career, uh, but probably not too unlike any other city. You respond to a lot of the same similar types of calls. Uh, when you work for a large department like I did, one of the uh, benefits is the fact that you get to move around a lot. Every two or three years, you kind of do something different. So I did everything from working standard patrol, field training officer, uh, bike patrol, robbery detective. I was a training counseling officer at our police academy, had a huge emphasis during my career in use of force training and defensive tactics training. So, you know, you kind of run the gamut of a lot of different experiences. I'm kind of jumping ahead, but uh, your knowledge and experience with use of force and defense tactics um, came into play later in your second chapter. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about that, because to us, it's always a important topic. What does someone do after they end a, a long career such as yours? What's the next chapter going to be and how are they going to maintain a, a sense of being of service and, and connection to emergency services? So in your case, how did you transition from being in law enforcement into producing and directing, editing and writing films? Well, you know, there's always a story attached to everything, right? And and I kind of, I, I know that the idea of retiring today, I'm seeing it more and more, uh, both, in, you know, in the first responder realm, what do you do to maintain purpose once you have left that job? Because the job kind of installs that for you, right? You 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 feel that sense of community, camaraderie, purpose, you have goals. Then suddenly you pull the plug and what do you do? The standard thing I always heard from everybody was, well, I'm going to golf, fish, and hunt. Well, that'll work probably for about six months, but then you'll quickly find out that those hobbies that you thought you could just do all day, every day, don't replace the 40 hours a week You know mm -hmm. that you're at work. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, for me, I kind of thought about that early on, and I've been that kind of quintessential film guy my entire life. And, and, and just, you know, the person who could quote movies and, and really became interested in how they were made at a very young age. So uh, well into the early 2000s. So at that point, only about maybe 10 years into my career, uh, I started to train in my off duty time in filmmaking uh, mm -hmm. and, and learning the technical aspects, knowing that as, as kind of a movie guy, I had an idea of what would make a good movie and could tell a good story. But then you got to know how to do everything else as far as the technical side, utilizing a camera, setting up a shot, proper mm -hmm. lighting, mm -hmm. post-production, all those kinds of things. So I did that on a part-time basis starting in about 2003. And then knowing that when I retired in 2015, uh, I would go into it full time. And that's exactly what I did. I think um, it's so important that there are uh, people from the professions who are in media, like filmmaking, podcasting, where um, you know, we're coming from, at it from a perspective, obviously, of having been inside and inside that world. And we probably have different, um, we're able to tell the story a different way because we've, we're coming from that perspective rather than 
the public's perspective where they're maybe unaware of a lot of the things that happen behind the scenes in, in mm-hmm. a police oh. department or a fire department or EMS agency. Um, do you think that your, like, how do you think that your law enforcement experience changes or kind of drives your filmmaking? Well, I, I think in a way it drives it in a way that it, determines in some cases what type of films I would make and why I would make them. One of the things I I will always tell people is if I'm going to make a film, say, about a police officer who's experiencing mental health issues or PTSD or some of the hot button issues that we talk about, uh, and rightfully so, I can say that I have lived those circumstances. I Mm -hmm. understand where they're coming from. So I think when you interview somebody for a documentary and you dig into their past and start to have an understanding of what might have caused these issues, I can say I've been in their shoes. And I think that really helps uh, immensely. And and not to knock somebody coming from, you know, Hollywood or somewhere else that's going to just tackle the subject because they think it's interesting. Mm -hmm, Uh, You know, I, I think that having that experience really drives the films that I make. According to recent studies, over half of firefighters report changes to their hearing since entering the fire service. This can be attributed to exposure to loud noise. Over time, special cells in our ears, which transmit auditory information to our brain, become damaged or die due to an inflammatory response, resulting in noise-induced hearing loss. However, there is a solution. Therapeutic hypothermia, commonly known as cooling, can reduce inflammation and injury. Take control of your hearing health with research-backed Rebound, an effective way to reduce inner ear damage associated with hearing loss after loud noise exposure. Early studies show that wearing Rebound after a fire shift results in better hearing function. Rebound can help protect firefighters' hearing and reduce the risk of long-term damage. Don't wait to protect your hearing. It's time to Rebound. Visit RestoreEar.com to get your Rebound today. I was wondering, why did you choose to specifically focus on documentary style filmmaking? Well, I, really, it's I feel like there's a lot of truth out there that's not being told. And, you know, I say it often, the mainstream media, they're in their business, right? And, and they're in for clicks and selling ads. And sometimes, unfortunately, uh, the truth as it relates to first responders and law enforcement in particular, which is my background. Mm-hmm. is not told in a manner that is authentic. Mm-hmm. And, and that really bothers me. And right. so I think that's what kind of drives the subject matter of the lot, a lot of the films that I have made and, and will continue to make in the future is to both tell that, those stories authentically and really humanize the badge to show that we're not a bunch of robots out there just doing you know what the public might think they want us to do when they're taking us for granted uh you know except for when they need us right but those stories if you i don't care what flavor of news you listen to when you turn Mm -hmm. it on it doesn't matter what side of that aisle you're on you are not getting the authentic take you're getting a journalist's point of view and how they decide to spin it well there's no spin in a film that i make you know the, the 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 authenticity i think is what really counts it almost sounds like journalistic justice you know like the justice that you were attempting to bring to the public, you're bringing it in a different way this time. And I, I find that fascinating. Yeah. I, yeah, I think, I, I, it's good. 
the the public has to learn about the person behind the badge. They have to, um, you know, because you've walked a mile in their shoes, you can produce things like this, right? And Bonnie and I have sat with plenty of officers that have told us, you know, the things that they struggle with. And David has worked beside law enforcement officers. And so that really changes your perspective on policing. It really does. Yeah. And I think that's really what's important. You know, when, when you have podcasts like uh, the, the ones that you guys are doing and, and, you know, these films out there, it really provides a resource for people, even people outside of the first responder community, if they want to really learn and they're serious about learning what it is that we go through in terms of the trauma of a career, the sure. family issues that we talk about. Uh, the use of force issues that that are hot button because every time you know the media wants to play five seconds of a body cam and everybody's going to rush to the court of public opinion to determine whether the officer did something right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Yet they've never been through a police academy, they've never had that experience themselves. But everybody knows exactly what they would do, right? How is that? How is that driven though? It's however the journalist or that particular news channel decides to portray it. And I think that's where a lot of the misinformation as it results to the first responder community ends up to the masses. And that's a huge, huge problem. I I just want to add that, you know, the public does have opportunities. You can go to your local police department and see if they have Citizen Police Academy. I did Mm -hmm. that. And I took Citizen Police Academy for 17 weeks to learn from a civilian perspective what it is that police have to learn and what they put up with. You know, the reports that they write, you know, the protocols that they follow, very important. Um, And then the other thing that, um, you know, most agencies are open to are Mm ride-alongs. You know, um, going for a ride along in a police vehicle with, and then asking the police officer questions. You can do that with fire departments. You can do it um, in some, I don't know about ambulances. What do you think, Bonnie? HIPAA wouldn't really allow for no, that. No, all right. Yeah, so, <laughs> so police and fire, you can do ride-alongs, and you can, you know, get firsthand, like, an idea of what it is like to go to a call. Not that, And if they ask you to stay in the vehicle, then you stay in the vehicle, you know, depending on the type of call. But yeah. um, To your but, point about law enforcement, Stacey, um, the county I live in not only has a civilian police academy, but they have a – the sheriff's department has a – half a day program called day as a deputy where you get to see all the different uh, units that the department has talk with the officers who staff it some hands-on interactive stuff but most importantly you go into a couple of scenarios with a practice weapon um and go into a domestic you go into a you know person in a car behind a building and i have to say you know even as many calls as i was on as a firefighter working with law enforcement there's nothing like being all of a sudden, now you're the one who has to, you know, have your head on a swivel, be situationally aware and figure out the best course of action in a split second. Um, it was eye opening. And that's something I wish every uh, civilian could go through just to understand what it takes to to be an effective law enforcement officer and the, the kinds of situations that they have to deal with that are, uh, you know, split second uh, decision making. Mm-hmm. I'll take that a step further because not only do civilians not know, but to your point, David, even fire EMS, you know, we understand police because we're next to them, right? We're, we're doing our job together in conjunction with, but mm-hmm. I remember I had an experience going into one of the training trailers for shooting 
and I got to go in and do the training. And when those assailants were coming on the screen and you had to decide in a split second, does he live or does he die? Um, I had a whole different level of appreciation that I, I could have never had by reading a book or talking to someone. I had to live it. So I think, Jason, what you're doing with shedding a light and really showing exactly what's happening, it will enlighten those of us who even consider ourselves pretty knowledgeable in the profession about first responders. But to live it and to see it through their eyes is a different thing. Yeah, for sure. And and that is uh, invaluable, the Citizens Academies and the ability like you were uh, referring to to go into a firearms training uh, simulator. And I would just add to that to say the amount of training that it actually takes, the amount of repetition, not just in a police academy, but career right. long to yes. be able to maintain the skill level and the knowledge level to be able to perform and have successful outcomes in those scenarios that you're talking about. Uh, it is is intense. It is something that has to be taken seriously. And unfortunately, even in the law enforcement side of things, training is a very hot button issue. And it's not always taken seriously, particularly by smaller agencies. Well, let's um, let's dive into the movie that speaks to this. And that's Wristlock, the martial mm-hmm. arts influence on police use of force. Every defensive tactics and self-defense technique taught to law enforcement officers is derived from the martial arts. Defensive tactics, like every other tactic, including firearms, is a perishable skill that has to be trained. Police officers don't train and stay proficient in defensive tactics. You're joining a profession where your job is control other human beings. It would make sense if you're good at it. This is a fight. You gotta do this two to three times a week, year rounds, continuously, to make sure that when you're in that high pressure situation, that those are the techniques that come out. When you train in martial arts, it allows you the opportunity to experience those things. And it's not the first time is when you're out there on the street when Lucifer has decided he's not going back to jail that day. The bad guy controls the fight, the bad guy controls the location, the bad guy controls the level of violence, and the bad guy controls the length of the fight. Agencies often treat training as almost like a vaccine, right? One shot in the arm and you're done. That we care enough about our officers that we're going to devote time and money and effort into training so that our people come home every night. When I'm in a physical altercation with a citizen, I have to win because if I lose, there's a good chance I'm going to die. It's mind-blowing to me that anybody would think that you don't need to spend time recovering from something so intense. As cops, we don't live as long as our civilian counterpart. That's got to change. I'm more or less likely to use force knowing I can use force effectively. Jason, what's the message you want this film to convey about the perishable skills and techniques for these high pressure situations we're talking about for police officers? Well, we really try to break that film down into 
one easy to digest paragraph to say, look, if you're going to be successful in the use of force outcome, there are three important factors. The first is going to be your defensive tactics proficiency. In other words, that training that you got and using your baton, your handcuffs, your empty hand self-defense, your OC spray, your uh, electronic control device, all the way up to your firearm. Are you maintaining the skills necessary to use those tools throughout your career? That's a yes or no, because if you, if you, you know what I mean? Uh, the second is physical fitness. Are you, again, a lot of people, they graduate a police academy and they say they're in the best shape of their life. That's debatable, but you are probably also young and that helps. But now you start to add five, 10, 15 years and you ever get into that position where you run into somebody, you know, 10 years after the academy, you don't recognize them because of, uh, you know, their bodily changes. Uh, physical fitness is a huge issue when it comes to being successful and use of force outcome. And then, of course, the final is mental health. If your mind is not right, you are simply not going to perform in these situations. In fact, I would make the argument that uh, it is mental health issues that probably causes a lot of the uh, overreaction to certain incidents that the public would reference as police brutality. Uh, If you looked into case studies into some of these officers that have had these types of aggression issues, Mm -hmm. it's going to lead back to their mental health. I would say that the film portrays the fact that if any one of those three factors are missing, defensive tactics, proficiency, physical fitness, or Mm -hmm. mental health, the officer is likely to not have a successful use of force outcome in any given scenario. I'd I'd like to add, too, um, you know, we see this in all first responders, sleep deprivation because of shift work. And there is actually research to show that, um, you know, police reaction time is akin to having a um, over-the-limit blood alcohol level if you're only getting four hours of sleep a night. So, you know, to handle a weapon if you're not sleeping well is, you know, you're, it's going to be a compromised situation. And, and also decision-making. Do I pull the trigger? Do I not pull the trigger? Mm-hmm. Um, so sleep is just critical, and we've we've uh, we've covered that in one of our one of our episodes. Well, to speak to the mental health aspect of it, you know, we could do a whole podcast just on that. But yeah. what comes to mind directly is we've been talking a lot lately about how first responders, especially police, get into that line of work often because of a difficult childhood, and they want to see mm-hmm. order and justice in the world. So I would imagine for those officers who've been victims themselves it has got to be so much more challenging. And if they have never dealt with those traumas from childhood, I would imagine in those moments of threat, it comes up easier, Mm -hmm. you know, and that comes up in conversation. And I think that there needs to be a permission level that we communicate to people that you can work on those things from the past, or they should be aware that those things can even affect their work today, which a lot of them are not, they're not educated on such. Um, so we've been trying to spend a lot more time getting that word out to people. I was wondering what you thought about that. Well, certainly going really deep down the rabbit hole when you talk about pre-hire, <laughs> right? Uh, mm-hmm. you, know, you, mm. you want you want to make, if it's possible to make a safe assumption that the hiring process is going to address the issues that you're talking about and that the police officer that we're getting is there uh, you know, that basically it is 
a clean slate, so to speak. I mean, none of us will be, uh, but you want to hope that the hiring process is going to cover that. But you're absolutely correct. There are so many different factors that go into every single encounter that a police officer has and how they decide to handle it. It's going to be quite literally different for every single police officer based on their background, their level experience. I think beyond the childhood issues, you could also bring in their military background right. if that applies. Right. And, yeah. you know, one of the films that I just completed that we'll talk about had a Marine who arrived to his police department after two tours in Iraq with PTSD already diagnosed. Uh. I have to figure that that had some level of effect on sure. his decision making during his 14 year police career. Mm -hmm. Responder Resilience is your place for insightful discussions for emergency services professionals, including law enforcement, EMS, fire service, 911 telecommunicators, animal control, rescue squads, K-9 officers, corrections, trauma-informed therapists, and agency leaders. We bring you leading experts and influencers in emergency services, sharing knowledge and tools to improve the culture of wellness and to inspire excellence in leadership. Tune in live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time for the weekly premiere on YouTube and Facebook. Or stream episodes anytime on RespondaTV.com or on your favorite podcast platform. Stay current with hot topics, informative content, and get valuable insights on how to lead a healthier life both on and off the job by subscribing to us on YouTube and Facebook. Responder Resilience is committed to our family of public safety professionals. Remember to like and subscribe today. This episode is made possible by Rebound by Restore Ear, revolutionary cold therapy for hearing loss prevention. To learn more, visit RestoreEar.com. That's R-E-S-T-O-R-E-A-R.com. Just jumping back to the martial arts piece, because uh, I think it's so important to this documentary, and it's come up before in other conversations with even police chiefs. It's an amazing tool, if you will, for law enforcement. Um, in a lot of different ways, everything from being a, a way to get grounded and to release stress and uh, blow off steam. But also in your documentary, you're looking at it, I think, mostly from the point of view of it as being a a way to enhance skills for de-escalation and, and handling um, use of force type of calls. Can you speak to that? Well, the reason why martial arts is, is a cornerstone of the film is because every defensive tactic that law enforcement teaches to their cops is derived from martial arts, all of them, quite literally. Cops didn't just make up their own stuff. This all came from karate, from judo, from jujitsu, mm -hmm. from boxing, Thai boxing, wrestling, and then came together in what every department calls their own defensive tactics lesson plan, which are generally similar across the board throughout the 18,000 plus police departments in this country. Mm -hmm. One of the problems, of course, is that once somebody is trained foundationally in their police academy, and I had mentioned earlier, particularly with smaller agencies that are 50 officers or less that comprise mm -hmm. about 85% of all police departments in this country, they don't have any recertification training beyond the academy. So you're absolutely correct. A martial artist, we almost, we don't want cops to be martial artists necessarily, but we want them to possess the same attributes. Some of the ones you were just talking about, the fact that if you are training constantly, it's going to be a good stress reliever, but it's also going to make you sharper in your decision-making. 
John Gentile, who's the main subject of the film, he's a 40-year yeah. martial artist, a very good mm -hmm. friend of mine, and we worked together. Uh, he concluded a 27-year career at my department, and he has a really good quote where he talks about using force uh, effectively because he has that knowledge, he has that competence, but he's more or less likely to use force knowing that. Because you're going into a situation and you have the confidence that you know you've trained, you've been here before, you've been pressure tested versus somebody who hasn't trained in five or 10 years. And you, it's going to be two different outcomes. And that's really the big point that the film makes. Can you talk a little bit about your other film, which is, is there something going on at home? Because I think this is one of those angles that's really forgotten. Um, in the world and the impact of the career on the family and the children. At first, you know, it seemed like everything was going to be great. You know, he, he took care of Angela. He took her everywhere. He played with her. Really a good father. And then I remember him saying to me that I was a federal agent working with the DEA, going after some of the baddest criminals out there, and now I'm home babysitting a baby. He was not able to let go of the job at all. And he had to focus that energy somewhere. And it was on us. And it was a living nightmare. So I used to get these flashbacks all the time. And that's what I think started me going into a spiral downhill. came home, I was irritable to her. She said, you're not gonna bring that home to me. When she did say that, yeah, it started to hit like, I'm not who I thought I was. I mean, this job has changed me. So many police officers are not gonna admit that. He goes back after five weeks and it is still fresh. That baby is still fresh and I'm still tired. And you're having these weird shifts and I gotta keep this baby asleep. It's the first tinge of single parent dumb. Every class I ask this question, how many communities do we belong to? And family is always brought up. And which is the most important community? And it's always family. But if that's the case, why is our divorce rate so high? How about if you teach them both in the relationship how to win at the relationship so they both get what they want and they're happy and healthy. And if something happens here, they know that when they go home, they have stable uh, people, they have support, they have people that love them unconditionally and will do whatever the next step is. That's what we need. Is there something going on at home? Is a big question. Wow, it's huge, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. As a police supervisor, when you are, say, a sergeant and you have a squad of, uh, of 12 to 14 police officers, and let's just take one of them, for example, any one of them, and you're looking at their performance, and then suddenly it takes a dip. This person's mm -hmm. a great troop and, and is a pleasure to work with and does everything you ask of them, but then suddenly it start, that performance starts to go down. Well, as a supervisor, we would always be taught the first thing you should probably do is bring them into your office, sit them down, and ask that question. 
Is there something going on at home? And that's where that title comes from, because we know that the family, often forgotten, as you just mentioned, is a huge factor in a police officer's performance. And as the tagline of the film says, when a police officer experiences trauma, their family will suffer right along with them. And, you know, the stories that we tell in this film are designed to convey that point that we can't forget the families and we have to address what is going on at home with compassion and empathy. How did this um, evolve? Um, I know Deborah Ortiz is um, probably the central figure of all this, but um, now the film also includes uh, people like Scott Medlin and his family, Dr. Olivia Johnson, Glenn Williams, uh, which is a pretty amazing cast, if you will, to represent uh, the family and and law enforcement side of this topic. How did it evolve from um, the beginning of this project to where it is now? Well, it actually goes back, believe it or not, to around 2018. Uh, I am working with Randy Sutton in the Wounded Blue, and and Randy had uh, he's a he's another Las Vegas Metro veteran. Comes up to me and says, "I'm going to start an organization for injured, disabled police officers." He knew I had just completed my first film the year before, uh, and wanted to explore doing a documentary about injured and disabled police officers. I'm like, great. So the first thing I'm always going to do is see what else is out there. And at that time, there was only one film. It was Code 9, Officer Needs Assistance, Mm -hmm. directed by Deborah Louise Ortiz. So Mm -hmm. I cold called her right over LinkedIn, and Mm -hmm. and we ended up becoming friends ever since. She was a big part of the research for the film, The Wounded Blue. We always wanted to work together, and I always, uh, after watching Code 9 myself, realized she had such a a passion for this cause for police families mm-hmm. but yet in code nine her story wasn't told and so we sat down one day about talking about well what if we told your story what what drove you to be this involved and this passionate about this topic of, pol- of the police family and the forgotten nature of the spouses and the children who are at home suffering right along with their first responder husbands and wives and that's how the film came into play in late 2022. We did a uh, fundraiser and were able to raise enough uh, money to be able to do uh, what is out now. It's a 47-minute film called Is There Something Going On at Home, which tells both (laughs) Deborah's story and, uh, as you had talked about, David, Scott Medlin's story. Um, um, And also that film features uh, Dr. Olivia Johnson, correct? It does. And man, is she just unbelievable. Uh, I really love what and how she conveys these points, particularly as it relates to the police family and some of the issues involving divorce, addiction, suicide. I I had said earlier, I'm really big on the truth and and sugarcoating it, in, in my opinion, never really gets the job done. Uh, sometimes you just have to kind of put it out there and with her development of the fatal 10, uh, I, I, man, we were so lucky to have her for this film. What we did is we made sure that she was able to watch the interviews with Deborah and her family, as well as Scott and his family so that she could comment when we sat down with her directly about Mm -hmm. the issues that both uh actually experienced during their their time as police officers and how it affected their families and we're really happy to have her um just on last tidbit there uh one of uh dr olivia johnson's fatal 10 
issues is interpersonal relationships. And so your documentary, Is There Something Going On at Home, is really applicable. No question. And, and she said that uh, Deborah's husband, Michael, when when she kind of filtered the fatal 10 through the things that he was talking about, I believe she had said that he fit nine of the 10 mm-hmm. factors, which is very scary. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I kind of look at that that story with uh, Michael and Deborah is, is something we were talking about a little earlier when it comes to retirement. It really is a cautionary tale. Because here you have a guy who's a a New York State trooper who ends up spending the last 15 years of his career as an undercover operative for the New York DEA task force, which is crazy in and of itself. You you think about the experience that this guy's probably had, Mm -hmm. but then he pulls the plug. Suddenly, as he says in the film, it's gone, gone in a blink of an eye, and he has no clue what he's going to do moving forward. And then now, just within a couple of years, what happens? He's addicted to uh, cocaine, the same drug he took off the streets for all that time, mm-hmm. and then ends up acting out his previous job by setting up his personal vehicle like a surveillance car, puts on his raid jacket, he's got weapons, tack vest, and goes to the locations of some of his old cases in New York City and just kind of sits out there for days at a time. Until somebody notices, and unfortunately, he was arrested for impersonating a federal agent. But that's how far somebody can go when they don't have that purpose in retirement. According to recent studies, over half of firefighters report changes to their hearing since entering the fire service. This can be attributed to exposure to loud noise. Over time, special cells in our ears, which transmit auditory information to our brain, become damaged or die due to an inflammatory response, resulting in noise-induced hearing loss. However, there is a solution. Therapeutic hypothermia, commonly known as cooling, can reduce inflammation and injury. Take control of your hearing health with research-backed Rebound, an effective way to reduce inner ear damage associated with hearing loss after loud noise exposure. Early studies show that wearing rebound after a fire shift results in better hearing function. Rebound can help protect firefighters' hearing and reduce the risk of long-term damage. Don't wait to protect your hearing. It's time to rebound. Visit RestoreEar.com to get your rebound today. I didn't want to create a spoiler, but to just go back to the content, I was very curious we don't really hear from the children or first responders enough. And I was wondering if there were any glaring things that stood out to you in listening to the children share their experience. Well, uh, the one child that's actually in the film that we interviewed is Angela Franklin. That's Deborah and Michael's now grown daughter. She's 23 years old, but she was born uh, the same year that Michael retired from his police career, which was in 2001. And Yeah, I I could tell you, you know, one of the things that you might hear from other documentary filmmakers, regardless of whatever subject that they are working on, you you tend to become emotionally attached to those subjects because what what ends up happening, you you shoot the footage, you do the interviews, you, you get all the research done. But at the end of the day, you're sitting in front of an editing system and you're going through this hundreds and hundreds of times. And I can tell you when I'm watching Angela's footage talking about the fact that, you know, she'll hear other people in her life, other friends talk about how they had a favorite toy or a favorite movie or a favorite moment in their childhood. 
And she can't relate to that because all of her thoughts about her childhood are negative. It gives me goosebumps just thinking about it because it's just, it's sad and it's very tragic. But that, that was the life that, you know, she was handed as, as, as a little girl at that time. And very powerful, very po- powerful part of the film. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I love your point about the editing process and how you do become intimately involved with all the subjects of a film where um, we've done a few what we call mini documentaries and had the same experience, like watching those clips over and over again and fine tuning them and seeing the best way to to weave them into the story. You know, we really become uh, closely involved with those people in the in the film. Yeah, when I was uh, when I was uh, doing the Wounded Blue. Uh, there's a story in there of a police officer named Craig Tiger in Phoenix, Arizona, who had committed suicide. And and uh, Randy and I uh, did a segment on his wife, Rebecca, who was also a police officer uh, and had since retired. And in that scenario, uh, he kind of, you know, went in that downward spiral that that people in that position obviously are, are experiencing and went missing. And when the police knocked on her door one morning and gave her the bad news that they had found him and, and he had committed suicide, her, her depiction and description of having to then go wake up her two young kids, who were both less than 10 years old at the time, and tell them that their father had killed himself and wouldn't be coming home. Uh, now imagine sitting and editing that piece and you're, you're having her tell that story over and over and over again, because you're looking at it from the perspective of you need this to hit with the highest level of emotional impact. Uh, yeah, it, it, it can be tough sometimes. I'm, I'll, I'll tell you later if you'd like about a film I'm working on now that is going to be my first entertaining film. And I, it's been a pleasure to do the same work on it because it doesn't deal with any of these issues like in the wounded blue and is there something going on at home but yet i feel there's a calling to get that those stories out there they're they're just so important well usually we'll ask you uh, you know what do you what projects are you working on so why don't you um tell us about that jason it sounds like an interesting film <laughs> well yes uh it, it still is in the police realm but but Moving slightly away into the more entertaining side of things. Do any of you guys know a comedian slash police officer named Vinny Montez? No. Okay. Hopefully you will soon. Uh, (laughs) Vinny, Vinny, uh, he's a commander with the Boulder County Sheriff's Office in Colorado. Uh, About 15 years ago, uh, he's about 27 years into his career now, but about 15 years ago, he ended up having some mental health challenges, uh, a lot of the, just from a lot of the traumas and things he'd experienced in the job and decided he needed to come up with an outlet. So he went down to the Comedy Works in downtown Denver and did his first two-minute on-mic set in front of an audience and never looked back. He's now a very <laughs> well-known comedian, and he's really funny, and, and most of his, his uh, material, of course, comes from his experience as a, poli- sure. as a police officer, yeah. and, and he's been at it for, as I said, 15 years now. So, yeah, that is my next film, is a biographical uh, film about him and, and his comedy. I could totally see that because I think we've all been in a cruiser, ambulance, or fire truck with a partner who really literally could go step on a stage somewhere. Um, and what they offer, it, it's it's an incredible balance. Uh, so thanks for telling us about them. And 
maybe one day we'll do that cold call on LinkedIn for him. <laughs> well, yeah, I can certainly set that up. But you know what? When you when you guys get done here, he's on YouTube, Vinny Montez. Uh, the film's going to be called Vinnyisms: The Story of a Cop Comedian, and I should have we should have that out here sometime this year. But yeah, it, it, it's really been a pleasure making it because it's a complete. Uh, juxtaposition of the type of material that I'm used to to uh, dealing with. Anything else you wanted to share? Any other projects? Um, do you have any, or this time be a good time to talk about where can people see? Uh, is there something going on at, on at home or wrist block? How can people find that stuff? Well, I uh, my production company website is lightningdigitalentertainment.com. So that's kind of the clearinghouse for all of my films. And e each film has its own official site or page. And, and the links to watch them uh, based on the platforms that they're on are there. Mm -hmm. uh, is there something going on at home? Just came out a few weeks ago on December 28th and is available currently on Amazon for rent and purchase. And Wristlock is uh, literally available all over the world. You can also watch it on Amazon. Uh, Apple TV, Google Play, Microsoft Store, or you can watch it for free with ads on places like Tubi and Plex. So very widely available. But I also want to mention one other thing, too, because I know, uh, David, with your your uh, previous career being in fire, have any of you guys uh, watched PTSD 911 from filmmaker Conrad Weaver? Yes, we've had Conrad on the uh, podcast. Great. Okay. So, you know, well, him and I recently partnered and, and he put together what is called the PTSD 911 toolkit. Okay. And we now have wrist lock as part of that toolkit. So agencies, police trainers, which I was for a really long time, I can tell you having good content to show your people is, is paramount and putting on uh, interesting and excellent classes for, for police and fire. And by purchasing the toolkit based on your agency side, size you get both ptsd 911 and wrist lock digital copies to show to your people in perpetuity so i definitely wanted to mention that because i really think that's a great thing there's a lot of awesome resources on there from the 911 institute nami uh the fop wellness and a host of other resources for police and fire trainers to show their people as an indie filmmaker, and I know Conrad will attest to this as well, we don't have million-dollar marketing budgets behind us. Um, you know, platform is, is, is a key thing, and, and that's what we're all after. And nobody wants to really give it up once they have it uh, for somebody else. And, and so if you're a big studio, certainly you're going to push your films, but you don't care about the little guy. But it, it really is the little guy in this case that I think are telling some of the more important stories out there. And mm -hmm. as it relates to, you know, the first responder community, uh, there's a lot of great stuff out there. And I hope people will take the time to watch and take a look. Jason, thanks so much for being here with us today and respond to resilience and having this conversation. Um, we've really got some great information and talked about some uh, things that we've really never talked about on this show. So mm -hmm. um, we're looking forward to seeing your films and sharing those out and continued success with everything that you've been doing. Thank you, guys. Uh, appreciate this opportunity. It was a great show, and I uh, really love the conversation. Thank you, and Godspeed to you and all your next endeavors. You as well. Thank, Thank you, Jason. Mm -hmm. Remember to like and subscribe, YouTube, Responder Resilience, Facebook, Responder Wellness, Inc., and Responder TV, bbsradio.com, Apple Podcasts, all the podcast platforms, and go to our website, respondertv.com, for past episodes and guest information. Until the next time, stay safe, be kind to yourself, take care. <laughs>